Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let's recreate the scene at the lower farm in Swansea. We're on the second floor. Moriarty is lying dead on a hooked rug. Blood is seeping into the rug and through the rug onto the floor. Holmes is getting his wits back. He's been sedated, but he has regained consciousness. And Morse has agreed to cooperate with Watson and do whatever is necessary to cover up this killing and get back to Fall River, get back to life as normal or as close to normal as they could under these circumstances. Morse had to deal with the horses. There were three horses. There were three carriages or buggies or flies, whatever you want to call them, gigs. Morse had to deal with them. He had to go down the road, get Moriarty's, bring it back to the lower farm. Then he had to get the one that he and Watson had used to come out and then also deal with Sherlock. So he had those three horses to take care of. While he was doing that, Watson scrubbed the floor. He rolled up the hooked rug. He put it on top of the corpse. He got a number of sheets and blankets and laid them under Moriarty's body, rolled Moriarty up in them, set him off to the side, and scrubbed the floor as best he could. Then he retrieved a rug from another part of the house and dropped it onto the place where Moriarty had fallen. Afterwards, he and Morse carried the body out across the road to a field that Mr. Borden had owned. They dug a grave and they buried Moriarty. Morse had asked Emma if she wanted to come out and pay her respects, but she declined. She said that she'd already done that. Having gone over this material, I tell you this with some degree of surprise, that she obviously had strong feelings for him, and yet once he was dead, she essentially said, it's over, it doesn't make any difference whether I go and weep and gnash my teeth and tear my hair, I'm done, he's dead, I'll move on. It's consistent with what we've seen in terms of Lizzie's behavior. These two women were remarkably unemotional, remarkably undemonstrative. And what's even more surprising to me is that Emma agrees to talk with Sherlock. And when I say stay and talk with Sherlock, she wasn't going to be going anywhere. She was not going to return to Fall River until Morse was ready to take her back. But the fact that she was willing to talk to Sherlock, I find surprising. Sherlock, not so much. Sherlock later described Lizzie and Emma as two of the most calculating and cold-blooded people he had ever met. He referred to them as automatons or something to that effect. I don't know if he used that exact word, but that was the gist of it. And he said to Watson, I would never want to be at the mercy of either of those people. I wouldn't expect them to show the slightest kindness or hesitation in terms of doing anything they thought appropriate or anything that served their purposes. I don't think anything would stop them from doing what they wanted to do or felt necessary. They would have no compunction in killing me or you or anybody else. So even though Sherlock did not tell Watson the details of that conversation right away, it did eventually come up. What happened was that after they had cleaned up the house as best they could, buried Moriarty and driven back up to Fall River, which meant that Sherlock had to drive his buggy, Watson had to drive the one that Moriarty had brought down, Morse took back the one that he and Watson had driven down in. So Morse takes that one back with Emma, returns it, Sherlock returns his, and then Watson takes Moriarty's into the industrial part of Fall River, down where the textile mills were located, and he just tied the horse up and walked away. They retrieved their luggage, Watson and Holmes retrieved their luggage from the rectory, said their goodbyes. Sherlock cabled Mycroft, 
asking him to help them get passage on the first ship back to Europe, to Liverpool from New York. They took the train down to New York because they didn't want to be in New England. They wanted to create some distance between themselves and Fall River geographically. They didn't want Emma and Morse to know where they'd gone. And from New York, they took the first ship back. When they got to Ireland, they got to Queenstown, which is the first port of call in Europe. The ships would often stop there before they went on to Liverpool. Holmes and Watson disembarked at that point, went up the western coast through Galway, and took a house in County Mayo, which Mycroft had arranged for them, and spent about a month there. This was Sherlock's idea. He felt that Watson needed that time to recover because Watson was traumatized by the killing. To my knowledge, Holmes and Watson had only killed one person ever before. I don't think the official records or the official version of Watson's involvement or, or Watson's interactions with Sherlock included any other murders except for in the memoir entitled The Sign of Four. They kill an Andaman Islander named Tonga. And that's only after he shoots a, a blow dart at them, a poison dart, or he puts the blow dart gun up to his mouth and they shoot him. And I don't think either of them was particularly upset about it because they didn't really seem to view him as fully human. They saw him as half human, half wild beast. And also they were acting in self-defense. So I think Watson viewed all this differently than he did that other example I've given you. And it weighed on him. And he made reference in his notes to repeated nightmares. And it wasn't just nightmares of killing Moriarty. There were nightmares, various nightmares involving people attempting to kill him, people attempting to kill Sherlock, a whole variety of terrifying dreams. But eventually, after they'd been in this house in County Mayo for a while, uh, Watson said he was ready to talk. And so Sherlock told him, gave him a summary of the interview, the conversation he had with Emma. And of course, Sherlock said to Watson, We'll never know how much of what Emma tells us is true. She's given us one version already. Here's another version. We can't verify much of it, but I'll tell you what she told me, and then I'll tell you what I believe or don't believe happened. And maybe the way for me to put it is based on what Emma had told him. What I'm going to give you is the version that Holmes adopted, and it was a hybrid of what he had heard, what he learned on his own, what he had observed and learned independently and the conversations he had had with Emma, including the final conversation that night after Moriarty had been shot. Essentially, Emma and Lizzie had begun talking about how they wanted their stepmother dead around five years before the murders, and that was directly related to Mr. Borden's decision to buy a half-interest in the residential property, give it to Mrs. Borden so that she could allow her younger half-sister to remain in her home. It's hard to exaggerate or to overemphasize or overstate how humiliating and enraging this was for Emma and Lizzie. We've talked about this a little already in the podcast. I think a lot of people looking at this would not understand. They would say there was an awful lot of money in this family. Mr. Borden was worth upwards of $500,000. What difference does it make for him to give his wife a gift that was worth fifteen hundred? dollars but Emma was upfront and honest about how she and Lizzie felt about it, and she explained as best she could. And so the version I've already given you in earlier episodes is essentially what Emma told Holmes and, and what Holmes ended up believing or concluding. And that is 
They'd lived with their father, under their father's roof for their entire lives. They were restless. They felt constrained. They weren't happy with the lifestyle. They felt their father was cheap, that he could have afforded a much better lifestyle. They resented their stepmother. All of that was true. And then, because their stepmother had managed to convince their father to spend the $1,500, that terrified them because they knew how difficult it was to get their father to spend any large sum of money on anything besides his business investments. And neither of them had ever been successful in getting him to give them a large gift. In addition, the fact that he had done this without consulting them, without giving them a comparable gift, also terrified them. It made them think that Mrs. Borden had a tremendous amount of influence over him. So they started talking about wanting her dead. And initially it was statements like, wouldn't it be nice if she was dead? I wish she would die. Boy, if there was some way to get rid of her, I wouldn't hesitate. Things along those lines. But they couldn't figure out any way to do this. They also understood at some point, maybe not until 1892, if they were going to play any role in Mrs. Borden's death, they needed to make sure that she died before their father did, because otherwise, if their father died first, Mrs. Borden would automatically inherit a third of the estate. So that was another consideration. They couldn't think of any way to do this and get away with it. Now, in addition to their hostility towards Mrs. Borden, they were increasingly antagonistic towards their own father. They felt more and more frustrated with him, more and more betrayed. Whether that was at all justified or not isn't really important. That's how they felt. They tried to fight the feelings at first, but they started to, and the thoughts, they started to fight the thoughts as well, but they started to think that he deserved to die as well. They weren't quite as adamant about it. They didn't feel as strongly about it, but they felt that if they were going to kill their stepmother, they might as well kill their father. What's the point of killing her if they had to wait another 10 years to inherit? Besides, their father might remarry. Their father might still screw them. He might draw up a will that left a lot of his estate to charity. The problem was that they had no way to pull this off. They couldn't think of a way to do it. They couldn't conceive of a way where they could kill them so that it was clear that Mrs. Borden had died first and that they would not be the obvious suspects. By the time Lizzie was about to turn 30, just before she went on the trip to Europe, and Emma was 39, they saw themselves as prisoners. They had no job skills. They had no independent income. There was little to no likelihood of marriage. They were at the mercy of their father, and they had to wait, and they resented it more and more as time went by. And although neither of them knew for sure what their father was worth, they had a pretty good idea as to the extent of his real estate holdings. They had some ideas to the rental income. They had some ideas to the value of the real estate holdings. They knew he sat on the board of directors for a number of corporations in Fall River. So they had a pretty good idea in rough terms or rough figures as to how rich he was. By 1890, I think Emma had lost hope or she was close to losing hope that she would ever be married. And she was the one who really had harbored that dream throughout her childhood and and into adulthood. She was the one that had wanted the security and support and comfort of a marriage, and she had hoped to have a family. And so when Lizzie's getting ready to go on her trip to Europe and leave Emma behind for 19 weeks, Emma is 39, and she's thinking, I'm never going to get married. And Lizzie's off on this long tour, and God knows what Lizzie will be like when she gets back. 
Lizzie, on the other hand, had not ever expressed any particular interest in getting married. It was pretty clear to Emma that Lizzie was not interested in men. So Lizzie wasn't as concerned about the lack of suitors. In fact, she'd had some suitors and had expressed no interest and had discouraged them. And as I've mentioned before in an earlier episode, to the extent that either of these women wanted to be married and was interested in being married, and certainly it appears that Emma was, they were in this no man's land in terms of their social standing. They had too much status in society to marry a clerk in a store or someone who worked as a plumber or a carpenter. Those people weren't good enough. They didn't have enough social standing or enough social cachet And at the same time, because of their father's bending habits and their father and stepmother's lack of glamour, their miserly habits, that they were not part of the social set that they aspired to. And they weren't courted. Emma was not courted by people from that segment of society, which is really what she would have preferred. So on the voyage to Europe, Lizzie meets Moriarty. It was pretty clear to everybody who traveled with her even on the outbound voyage, that she was not happy at home. We know that at the trial, the prosecution tried to present testimony from a distant cousin of Lizzie's named Anna Borden, who had shared a cabin with Lizzie going to Europe and coming back. Lizzie had told Anna, I think on more than one occasion, that she did not feel happy living at home. So Lizzie was willing to tell this to all kinds of people. And when she met Moriarty, who had these invisible antennae where he could find vulnerable people, he just had a knack for it. When she meets him and he focuses on her and he gives her attention and she immediately or very quickly tells him about her life and he asks her a lot of questions. He finds out either directly from her or from gossip on the ship from other people that she comes from a rich family. He learns that she has an older sister, and he asks her a lot of questions as they get to know each other. He wants to know all about her life. And this is nice for her. She's not attracted to him. She's not interested in having any kind of romantic relationship with him, but she's flattered. It's nice to have anybody show an interest in you, especially someone who's as well-educated, sophisticated, debonair, whatever, however you want to describe him. She also seemed to understand that there was a dangerous side to him, and she may have seen something in his behavior that indicated how dangerous he was. She may have seen an encounter between him and someone on the staff, someone below him on the the staff of the ship. He may have struck somebody. He may have talked about people or two people in a way that showed he had a dangerous, angry, callous side to his personality. She was also a pretty perceptive person in a lot of ways. I think she was able to size people up fairly well. So I think she learned or understood pretty quickly that he was somebody that might be interested in helping her. By the time they reached Liverpool, she already knew, she'd heard either from Moriarty or through the grapevine, that he was going to be fired. The captain had informed Moriarty halfway through the voyage that when they reached Liverpool, he was done. So by the time they got there, I think Lizzie was already aware of this. Moriarty did not have a lot of choices at that point. He wasn't welcome to stay in England. His brothers had wanted him out. They didn't want him to track them down. They wanted him out of the country. He was a liability. He had burned through the money that they had given him. He knew they'd be angry when they learned that he kept losing jobs. This wasn't the first job he had lost. He'd lost a series of jobs working in the capacity of a ship's doctor with different shipping lines. 
Whatever money they gave him, he spent quickly and recklessly. He was a big gambler. He lost a lot of money playing cards. He lost money betting on horses. He would go to casinos and lose large sums of money. And Lizzie intrigued him. He had underestimated her just the way that Sherlock did, just the way that the police did. He saw her as provincial. He saw her as uneducated. And yet, for one thing, she resisted him. Women in general, if they were open to his advances emotionally, socially, they inevitably succumbed to him. He was physically domineering. He had to have his way. Yet here was a woman that was very clear she wasn't going to respond to him physically or romantically. And that was a challenge. As I said in one of the earlier episodes, you could say that Lizzie and Moriarty were in the right place at the right time when they met each other, or maybe you could say they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, depending on whose perspective you're using. If you're using Mr. and Mrs. Borden's, you'd say the wrong place at the wrong time. Anyway, Moriarty saw something in Lizzie that he liked. To the extent that Moriarty was able to have a thing for somebody, I think he had a thing for Lizzie, even though she wasn't interested in him. Maybe that was part of the reason that she attracted him. She was attractive to him. Emma told Holmes something that led him to conclude that it was Lizzie. It was Lizzie who probably first raised the idea of killing Mr. and Mrs. Borden, that it wasn't Moriarty's suggestion. When this topic came up, however it was raised, and it was probably initially raised by Lizzie, Moriarty indicated that he would be willing to help, but he would need some type of guarantee that Lizzie wouldn't cheat him out of any windfall, that he would get a share of the estate, and that Lizzie would not use him as a fall guy. And so here's where we get into a murky area, and I'm not sure exactly how Lizzie and Moriarty talked about this, or what Moriarty's understanding was, or exactly what Lizzie's understanding was, but the way I would put it is that Lizzie said to him, You've heard me talk about my sister Emma. You know how close I am to Emma. You know that Emma and I look at things the same way. We have the same feelings about my father and stepmother. Emma is interested in men. Emma, I think, would be responsive to you. And maybe if you and Emma reach some kind of understanding, you might be more comfortable working with both of us. You could say, cynically, that Lizzie was offering her sister as a hostage of sorts. I'll give you my sister. You can dominate her. You can mislead her. You can use her, raise her hopes, whatever, if that's what makes you feel comfortable and if that's what it takes for you to kill my father and stepmother. That is you know, one way of looking at this. And I think to some extent, Holmes would have agreed with that description. He might not have put it exactly that way, but I think he would say that's If not 100% accurate, it's close. And while Lizzie did care for Emma, and she worried to some extent about what Moriarty was capable of doing to Emma, I think she also believed that Emma could hold her own. At least that's how she rationalized this. She didn't want to think that Emma might fall for this guy. She didn't want to think that Moriarty might really mistreat her and that Emma might put up with it. She wanted to believe otherwise. Now, whether she really believed it or whether she just told herself this is not clear. But she must have known that by introducing them and encouraging them to hook up, that she was possibly endangering her sister's life and certainly toying with her sister's hopes, her sister's emotions, etc. She could not have believed for an instant that this was a healthy relationship. She could not have believed for an instant that Moriarty would have genuinely been interested in Emma romantically in any appropriate way. And so I think the only way she probably could have justified this was to tell herself that Emma's tough, Emma's realistic, Emma will understand that this is basically, she can have a fling with this guy, 
Maybe Emma can convince Moriarty that she has fallen for him to make him feel more confident and make sure that he follows through on what we want. But I don't think Lizzie spent a lot of time worrying about whether Emma was going to get hurt or whether this was all going to backfire on Emma or on both Lizzie and Emma. So because Moriarty was out of a job because his brothers were not willing to give him any additional money, he followed Lizzie around Europe and she supported him as best she could. They discussed their plans, they worked on the details, and eventually, without having Emma's okay ahead of time, Lizzie offered Moriarty one-third of the inheritance if he helped them, and they pulled off these murders successfully. Now, Moriarty made it clear to Lizzie, in case there was any doubt, that both Mr. and Mrs. Borden would have to die, that there could be no sentimentality about Mr. Borden, they couldn't get cold feet about that, that there was no point in killing her if they were going to let him live for a variety of reasons, and Lizzie committed to that. Now, she wasn't able to get Emma's okay on this because she didn't dare write any of this in letters, even though she knew that Emma would not willingly show or disclose any of this to Mr. and Mrs. Borden. She didn't want to risk the letters being discovered or Emma making a mistake and leaving a letter out carelessly. So she waited until she got back before she told her all this. She told her very little about Moriarty when she was in Europe. Moriarty and Lizzie did have a correspondence, but none of it was romantic. When Sherlock assumed that there was romantic correspondence and when Emma confirmed that, none of that was true. There was some correspondence between Emma and Moriarty as well. Some of that was romantic, less from the perspective of Moriarty, more coming from Emma. The dealings between Lizzie and Moriarty were, from the start, business relations. They never involved romance, as far as Emma was concerned, as far as she knew. In the spring of 1891, four or five months after Lizzie returned from her trip, Moriarty comes to New York, and while he's there in the city, he commits a murder. He kills a prostitute named Carrie Brown, as Sherlock suspected. Part of it may have just been bloodlust. He may have needed to release some demon by doing so. He may have been compelled, some kind of compulsion to kill. Part of it may have been to show Emma and Lizzie what he was capable of and to keep them in line, both to convince them that he could handle their parents and also to scare them or intimidate them. I believe he disclosed this to them. That was what Emma said. I think this is a good place to conclude. We'll pick up where we left off next time. I hope you join me. And until then, take care.